After studying textile engineering in Iran, Dr Nassim Amaralian decided to move to Australia to pursue a PhD. Nassim now works as a materials scientist with Spinifex grass and agricultural waste to produce innovative materials for biodegradable packaging, medical textiles and other biocomposites. As a group leader at the Australian Institute for Bioengineering and Nanotechnology, Nassim gets to supervise her own research group, guiding the focus of their work. In this conversation, Nassim talks about working closely with Indigenous Australian communities, taking on leadership roles while developing her own career, how we can address plastic pollution and agricultural waste, and working across cultures. Welcome, Nazim. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It's my great pleasure. I want to ask a little bit about your early scientific life. Can you tell me about your pre-PhD life? Where did you do your undergrad and what made you want to do a PhD? I did my bachelor and master degree in textile engineering back home in Iran. So after finishing my master, I knew that I, I want to go for continuing my education, do a PhD. At the beginning of master, I didn't have quite clear idea that I'm going to go overseas to continue that. I grew up in a family that always higher education, it was important for my parents and they provide, they support us and encourage us to go for higher education. So that was a dream for me being a PhD student. So when I finished my master's, I saw that few friends, they're looking at going overseas to continue their education. So I decided to do the same. But unfortunately, it took me a bit of time. It took me three years to get a scholarship because of a specific political issue that my country had with the rest of the world. But meanwhile, I was working as a general manager of a textile company. Two years every day, I was dreaming to get a scholarship and continue my education in overseas. Finally, I got it from UQ and then started my PhD in 2010. A lesson in uh, perseverance by the sounds of it. (laughs) As an undergraduate, you worked in in textiles engineering. Can you tell me a little bit about what that entails? What does that look like as a degree in an area of study? We have two different kind of major of textile engineering back home. One is mainly related to the yarn production and different weaving process. And another one, which is my major, is related to the fiber, different type of fiber, for instance, synthetic fiber, natural fiber, like cotton or synthetic like polyester, how they can be produced as well as their different finish and printing and dyeing method. So I major in this area, which helps me to continue my PhD as a nanomaterials engineer. It's a little bit of change and work with these very thin and strong nanofiber can be extracted from spinifex grass or any other type of plants. You moved to Australia. How was that? Was that difficult moving abroad and away from your family and your support networks? Yeah, because it took me such a long time. And to be honest, I had several unsuccessful applications because of a specific issue. When I got the fellowship, at the beginning, I didn't believe it. But when I came to Australia, I was thinking that I'm extremely powerful. I can do anything. There is no limitation for my desire and achievements. But that was at the very beginning. Then I realized that 
there are huge cultural difference. And then as well as the project that I was given, it was very challenging. It wasn't the way that I was thinking, but I already decided that I left my family, friends, everything behind because I wanted to go for higher education and I wanted to make it work. I started something, I had to finish it successfully. That was really important for me. Yeah, I learned a lot. So tell me a bit more about your PhD research. What did you do and in particular, what sort of challenges did you face? Yeah, my, my PhD project was about Australian endemic grasses benefits. Um, so there was a collaboration between my co-supervisor, Professor Paul Mehmet, and Indigenous Committee, the Glunji Aboriginal Corporation. Before I joined the group, they got an ARC Indigenous project. It was a five-year project, two postdocs actually. Before me working on that project, the whole project idea was about extracting spinific resin and use it for some scientific application. So I started the same way, but I found that it has a very complicated chemistry. The resin contains more than 100 different volatile and non-volatile components. And I wasn't a chemist. <laughs> so then it was the project also, it was very, very different from the expertise of my PhD group's team. Everyone was working on different area and I was just working on different, which was new to me as well. So I suggested to work on the Spinifex fiber and how that came to my mind, I had no idea, lots of reading and just reading, reading, reading and made a hypothesis because of the specific environmental condition that this grass grows in might has different structure. And then I brought this up to my advisory team, didn't accept it at the beginning, but I just kept doing. This is an important lesson for students. When you back up your idea, your hypothesis with the science, then you can prove it. Just go for it. So you mentioned that you worked with First Nation communities. Can you talk a little bit about how you engage with these communities as a researcher and and what do you need to know going into this field? The thing is that I was lucky. I was very in a privileged position that my PhD project was in collaboration with Indigenous community and their relationship was established. But my discovery brought it in a completely different stage. So during my PhD, we had communication, we had these joint meeting. I've learned a lot because they have the knowledge. The knowledge and science is already there in the traditional way. All we need to take our lessons and then think how we can use that knowledge and then apply it in a scientific way to develop new material. So after the discovery of Spinifex nanofibers, then for the first time an umbrella agreement uh, signed between the UQ and Indigenous community, it was the first time that happened in any Australian university. So based on that, we just share all the information, all the decision-making and benefits. Then the pilot plant facility formed. And following on that, uh, just a few weeks ago, we received the news that the first startup company was established from my PhD project. That's amazing. Yeah. How exciting. Making me feel a bit like I did nothing in my PhD. So make me feel better. What did you do after your PhD? After my PhD, I just wanted to bring this up to the younger scientists. Don't give up. Even my PhD ended up to that discovery, which was 
just a huge achievement. It's a big impact for UQ and the whole nation, but I didn't have a job, could you believe it or not? And I had visa issues. So the turning point in whole my career was that soon after my PhD, I had two successful fellowship applications that gave me three years job opportunity. I could apply for a visa. And then this fellowship demonstrated my leadership in that field as well as my independency. So I'm just a, a humble infectious disease person. Um, so engineering seems like a bit of a black box to me. Can you explain in, in really lay terms what you're working on and what your science is all about? My science is all about making sustainable bio-based material. Basically what we are doing, we use agricultural waste, such as sugarcane waste. It can be banana or pineapple waste. Sounds Any delicious. Yeah. <laughs> any type of waste and then extract a valuable component out of this and use those, re-engineer those components for the range of different applications. It could be sustainable biodegradable packaging material that you can degrade it in the home compost or it can be antimicrobial material like better and safer face mask. We already know that the face mask pollution during the COVID, it generates huge plastic pollution. So we are working on making biodegradable face masks that can degrade, get back to the nature. We are working on a range of different uh, products. So you became a group leader at what I would say is a pretty early stage in your career. What sort of tips can you offer recent graduates who are thinking about establishing their own independent research group? Yeah, I believe that I'm one of the, I, I don't know anyone else who become group leader at level B, but at very early stage of my post PhD, I started to work independently. So after my first fellowship, I left my PhD research group because I wanted to become an independent researcher. And then I started to identify a new project. I've become a PhD student again. I've done all the experiments myself. I collaborate with a lot of other research groups and help their students in order to maintain my track records. And then, yeah, apply for the funding again. And I demonstrated my capacity and leadership in that area, which has been recognized by AIBN. I took the leadership position of the whole Spinifix uh, facility and research pilot plan facility and research activity in 2001. All these different proof of my leadership skills and capacity led me to getting this position. <laughs> For those of us who are outside of academia and, and there is hopefully a listening population that is outside of academia here, can you talk to us about what exactly a group leader is? Yeah, a group leader might have different responsibility and different definition in different institutions, in different university. But at my institute, a person who already demonstrated their ability in leadership, leading a team and bringing funding for several different projects, leading projects as well as people. So you have a group of people based on the funding that you receive, you employ PhD students and other staffs to work on different projects and deliver. What was harder, doing your PhD and, and dealing with all those challenges or trying to establish yourself as a, as a young group leader? 
PhDs are the easiest part of my journey. <laughs> oh, no, don't tell people that who are doing yeah, PhD. You have just one project, you need to deal with that. But imagine that even you become a group leader, you have a team and each of them, they have different projects, which basically is your project as well. What I try to establish in my group, in addition to having the research skill, which I believe that more or less most of the PhD applicant will develop these technical skill. There are a lot of soft skill, which are more important for their career development. We do a lot of practice of leadership and assertiveness in the group in order to become ready for the next career. And these are all takes time. And to be honest, a lot of reading and learning process for me in order to be able to practice this with my team members. So I'm quite interested in what you mentioned about your engagement with industry. I'm a pretty academic researcher, so I don't do much with industry. What would you recommend to me or somebody else about going about starting an industry collaboration? I like to see the impact of my research in real community. My dream is that seeing people are using my products and help them with the betterment of their life. So this passion is there. So very early on of my research, I try to always to collaborate with industry. I believe that it also comes from the culture of group that I did my PhD. My uh, PhD supervisor always had this interaction with the industry. In addition to your fundamental basic science, that gives you a completely different perspective that how you can make a product and work within a kind of industry. And I have to say that being a materials engineer give you this opportunity easier to collaborate with industry, but it's not easy to find industry partner. Even if you find it, getting support and to develop your project is not easy considering that we don't have a lot of manufacturing in Australia. It takes a lot of time and energy to establish that relationship and maintain that relationship. Can you just cold call industry and say, hi, I've got this amazing product. Would your company be interested? Or do you really have to have to sort of go a bit more of a formal route? No, actually, that's a good question. What I did for the second advanced Greenstown Fellowship, which was exactly the same time that we moved into a work from home situation, first of all, is finding industry partner. And what I can, the strategy that works for me, even I Google and find the industry and then find the right person that is really important, communicate, contact with, and LinkedIn. Never ever underestimate the power of LinkedIn. It's extremely powerful tool in order to connect you with the industry. And what I do usually, I do my homework, get as much as information about those industry as well as prepare some kind of project idea considering that don't disclose any potential novelty and IP. So prepare one or two pages about the project and I contact them. Now I'm seeing that in the past three to four years, it's much easier. They are willing to meet with you and talk to you, but what I did for advanced screens, I called them. I called them and introduced myself, said that I have this technology. And then after that, when I found that they're interested, I followed up with my two pages information as well as email to see that if they're interested to collaborate and work together. One of the things that you mentioned is that 
a PhD teaches you not just lab skills in science, but also these soft skills. How do you find or, or what sort of lessons have you learned about dealing with people, be they a supervisor or be they your own staff or students? What do you think is really important in maintaining those relationships? Look, what I found that is very broad. If I look at my story, I came from completely different culture and linguistic background. So a lot of time I didn't know that I can easily ask people and seek for help. I didn't know that because it was different from what I used to do in my own country. All those lessons that I took over the years, I tried to translate these to my students, especially women. You know, a lot of time we are thinking that, okay, I'm working so hard and probably my supervisor realized it, but this is not the case. You need to talk about your achievement. This is really important. So this is the cultural difference. And then imagine that when you're coming from completely different cultural linguistic background, uh, clearly and very transparently communicate with my team. This is really important. And I'm expecting they do that as well. Another practice that we do is Feedback, usually every year, we I prepare a few uh, kind of um, uh, sheets. First thing is about reflection on our achievement or our goals, what we've done very well, what we could have done better. And then I give feedback and I receive feedback from them as well because my team is the closest people who are working with me. They could give me the best feedback in order to improve my leadership skills. Particularly as women in science, I think one of the things I see a lot is imposter syndrome. Is that something that you've experienced and what sort of advice would you recommend? Oh, definitely, I believe. (laughs) (laughs) I think we all have. Yeah, we all have. And then at different stage of our career, it will become more significant or less significant. So my strategy so far, I've been doing a lot of self-learning. There are a lot of good books out there that really help me in order to become better leader, in order to manage people better, especially when you start at very early on in your career to managing a team. is not easy. Probably dealing with your staff is the easiest part, but how to communicate and deal with the senior people, that's a bit <laughs> challenging and it needs a lot of a lot of skills to be developed. But, you know, now my strategy is that at the end of the day, this is just a learning process. Mm-hmm. We are not expected to do everything perfectly. And even it's not needed everything to be perfect. We're going to learn on the, on the path. Yeah, and as long as you learn from something, then it's, yeah. it's not a wasted experience, I yeah. guess. If you could look back, what sort of advice would you give your younger self, what would you like to know that you didn't know then? Believe in yourself. Doesn't matter how older people judge you. If you have a dream, go and get it because you reach to a point that everything gonna change it. Even those people who used to judge you, they're gonna look at you completely differently. The attitude that always grew up with and it was important for me Whenever you start something, go to the end. You have to finish it because when you finish it, it the first of all is just the respect to yourself. It gives you the feel of achievement and accomplishment. 
This is really important. And never ever give up. It's just learning. Don't let ever giving up to be an option. If you have a dream, go get it. Nobody can stop you. Tell me a little bit about in your field, what's the particular bit of technology or new discoveries that you're really excited about at the moment and that you think is going to be particularly important in the coming years? Yeah, we are working on a few different projects, but with the overall aim of addressing the issue related to the sustainability and plastic or agricultural waste issue. Basically, what we are doing, we are using agricultural waste, add value to them in order to tackle the plastic waste issue. So we are working on a few different projects. One is uh, developing the antimicrobial property, which is in collaboration with you. It's, your a, great, it's a great project. <laughs> I can attest to that. Yeah, and as well as we are developing uh, bioplastic using agricultural waste, which I'm currently <laughs> trying to write a funding in order to just establish this facility at UQ, which would be a unique facility in whole Australia. I'm providing opportunity for research and development in renewable packaging material in Australia. Yeah, and it's it's certainly something that people are much more conscious of now. So yeah, there, there really is a big drive for it. What do you love about science? What's your absolute favourite thing about doing this job? Two different aspects, but with one ultimate goal. A few years ago when I kind of had to step back from my position and then establish my group, I had a proper think about that, what I want, what I want of working at university, what I want of being a professor. And I found that the major drive for me is helping people. University is a fantastic place because you can help young generation and they can pass on the button to the next generation. This one big, really bold perspective. And then in terms of my science, I also try to help society. I think that's a perfect place to, to leave this conversation. So thank you so much for your time, Zim. It's my great pleasure. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Women in Science. Your donation can help us tell more stories like this one. You can find the donation link in the episode notes. Production for this episode was by Dr Marina Fortes, Dr Marlous Decker and Dr Kirsty Short. Senior technical production was by Dan Seed, Make sure you subscribe to Women in Science. Thanks for listening.